I think people have come here because they, they like the challenge of the stuff we're building. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at what we're actually doing, we're making events and payments software for Salesforce. There's already other platforms. There's already other competitors that do it. Outside of Salesforce, there's like 50 event software that exist, right? Like we're not doing any kind of earth shattering work in the world, but it's mentally challenging. Uh, it provides a lot of benefits to people. Like we've had some people on the team that have had one, two, three babies while they've worked here. Uh, they like, they live their lives here. They have a lot of stock options to exit. You know, if we do what we think we're going to do, it's pretty life-changing for a lot of people, including a lot of people outside of the U.S. Ladies and gents, welcome back to another episode of The Dirt, where we dive into the art and science of growing and selling technology businesses. I am your host, Jim Barnish, and today we have a very special guest joining us, someone who has carved a unique path in the world of tech and continues to lead the charge in revolutionizing how businesses interact with their customers. Please join me in welcoming Chris Fetterspiel, founder and CEO of Blackthorn, a trailblazing company making waves in the world of event management and payment solutions. Having started his journey as a software engineer, Chris now leads a thriving 10 million plus ARR business set to double in revenue again this year. But things were not always so successful. In fact, such a few years ago, Chris had 7K in the bank and 80K in bills due. Yikes, but we've all been there. So today, we're going to talk about how he got out of his rut, pivoted his business six times, increased his prices even when he was nervous to do so, and a bunch more of his dirt. If you're enjoying the show, please support our sponsor, Orchid Black, by subscribing to the show and giving us a follow on LinkedIn. All right, Chris, let's dig in. Who is Chris and what is Blackthorn? <laughs> I'm Chris. Uh Blackthorn makes apps for the salesforce.com platform, and we focus on doing payments and events. And we work a lot with the verticals of higher ed, nonprofit, and sprinkles of uh, healthcare, financial services, and uh, home services. And how did you guys get started on that? Yeah, uh, like any founder story, a lot of them are kind of weird. So I started in this space in early 2011. I worked at two companies, picked up the Salesforce platform rather quickly. Uh, I can write code. I don't like writing code. I don't really have the patience. Uh, so I get to do a lot of the architecture, which is a unique reason that Salesforce has grown so much. It's very flexible, and I kind of gravitated towards that. So uh, I got fired from my second job. Long story, like half the company turned over, uh, they left or got fired. Eventually my boss got fired and the owners apologized. They said, you know, sorry, sorry about uh, what happened. Well, I, I had relationships and I learned the platform. So I sold a whole bunch of the Salesforce implementations. I figured if I could cover my expenses at the time, which was like five to 10K a month, then it would be enough to cover myself. But I sold a whole bunch too many. I couldn't deliver all of them. And I started to, uh, I partnered with another guy and hired a bunch of people. That was a services company. And along the way, I used a bunch of the payments apps and there was no integration to Stripe at the time. And I wanted to do a payments app that was easier to use that integrated with Stripe. So I did that. And my co-founder at the time said, I have a bit of the same thesis with events. So that ended up being the, the thesis for this. Uh, we had no idea what the target verticals would be. We just knew that on the platform, that's where there was a need. So that became our focus. That was early, uh, mid-2015. And how have, how have things evolved since? So about seven years, eight years, almost eight years in, how, what's, 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 uh, what's life been like? Yeah, uh, well, um, we took a little bit of a different path because we had existing relationships. So we were lucky to get a whole series of implementation projects early on where we kept the IP. So we were selective and we did stuff in the payments and events. I'll use the word space because a lot of the things that we ended up doing uh, weren't exactly in the right space that we ended up killing later on. But we were lucky to get projects that were like 300K, 400K, 250K, like things that are good for a very small team to work on. And that went for about three and a half years. Uh, and then my co-founder and I split. I ended up buying out his uh, shares and then killed a whole bunch of the apps in order to focus on uh, payments and events at the time. What uh, 
was it an amicable split with your co-founder? Was it change of course? Like what what was what was that like moving on from from the co-founder? Yeah, it um it wasn't amicable, I would say. Uh it would be like with any relationship, if it's like a intimate relationship or a business relationship, there's always ways to part ways, and some of them are easier, and some of them are not as easier or easy. Uh, this mm-hmm. one was not as easy. Um, I learned a lot from him about how to do product stuff, and I didn't really know how to do that uh, before. Uh, but at the end of the day, our personalities were just too different, uh, and it kind of came to a head. And we said, you know, what do we? want to do with this thing. And we were both like, you know, one wanted to buy out the other one. And we eventually figured out that I ended up um, buying out his shares and he went on to do his own uh, company then separately. What, uh, was there any specific event that was kind of the catalyst towards that happening? You know, like, uh, it's it's been the same thing as with our company. There wasn't any one thing that worked or didn't work. So there was a th- series of smaller things that happened between us. Sort of like, you know, it wasn't like a relationship where you catch someone like cheating or something. It was right. a series of of like smaller things that kind of built up and it said like, okay, you know, this really isn't working now. So you know, it's time to time to part ways. Got it. Got it. Now, um, you've had an interesting uh, ebb and flow of the business and obviously um, are in a really great spot now driving, you know, 10 plus million in revenue about to double again this year. Right. Like, but things haven't always quite been uh, so rosy. Yeah. How did, you know, how did, how did, how did you get, how did you get over the hump, so to speak? Well, uh, we never had any VC funding. So currently we still don't, we have a big debt facility, but, um, I still have 64% of the company. I'm the only board member. So we still look a little bit different in that regard. Uh, but in mid 2018, we had way too many, you could use the word app. Uh, they were kind of like large features running on their own kind of structure that kind of went together and we charged for some stuff and we had no focus. So we were about to die. Uh, we had like an 80 K outflow with, uh, at one point we got down to seven K in the bank. Um, I pitched a lot of people, which we were talking about just before this, uh, you know, some people I pitched and they didn't really want to want to bite. And, uh, it's a few reasons. I'm pretty bad at sales. Uh, we also had no true focus. So when I was explaining the company, people had no idea like what we really did. And, you know, I, you know, Paul Graham and YC, they say like they invest in founders. Uh, They don't necessarily invest in what the business is doing. So I guess that doesn't really bode well for me uh, because we had no focus and people didn't invest in me. But uh, somehow I convinced Jason Calacanis on his launch fund. They wired 100K when we were about to die. A friend threw in 50K. And I pitched uh, anywhere between seven and nine investors every week for 12 weeks. And his advice was, you know, they don't know you every week. You might as well pitch something different. So I picked different apps that we had in our stack to pitch and listen to the feedback. And a hundred in-person investors still didn't want to invest. I said, okay, this sucks. But the outcome was that people really liked events and they liked this concept of mobile payments, but mobile payments is, it wasn't really enough to like fuel the business. So we still get some like pretty nice deals from it. Uh, but events tended to be something that, that tended to work. So we ended up killing a lot of these other apps. We got some customers to prepay on some bigger things. Our payments app was free at the time. We converted that to paid and, you know, we said to everybody, we have to cover costs. It's gotten bigger. No one really griped. Everybody paid. And then we changed this big multi product data normalizer thing just to be a point solution for events. Started to sell that thing. It really was terrible when we started. It was like if Eventbrite was in their first day of working is all it really did. And everyone pretty much hated it uh, until we got into the hands of some people. And the uh, business-to-business world of getting requests for proposals, RFPs, is a very weird space because an RFP has nothing to do with the user interface. No one really cares if your app looks terrible. So all we did was focus on the line items. We just checked boxes. Everything that those things needed, we just went after every single feature they have. And now we win most of them. 
And that was the way that we started to uh, get a lot of these. And then the business started to work when there was this uh, account executive who was at a competitor, reached out to me and said, we keep seeing you guys in deals. And I said, okay, uh, do you want to come here? And he's like, well, that's why I'm reaching out. Yeah, I'd love to come there and run your sales. And he was able to explain the business. Like, I'm a techier person. I can't really explain the benefit of things to people. I more focus on the features, which is not how you do sales. And he was able to explain the app to people in a deck, which I didn't even have a deck at the time. Was, the whole thing was a mess. And then at that point, we were at like five, 600K ARR. And then we started doubling each year after that, that we had sales. And then eventually... Stuart came on the team and he helped us to understand like how to sell bigger deals. And he comes from like a bigger deal world and then the deal started to get bigger. And now we go after a lot of the bigger stuff. And so it's kind of been, been working that way since. So a, a bunch that I want to unpack there, cause that was a ton of really awesome information. <laughs> let, let, let's, um, let's go back to the, what I would classify as kind of near death experience, right? Mm -hmm. Where, where you had less money in the bank, way less than you had due to other people. Mm -hmm. And you had to scrounge and figure out things that um, that you never wish you had to, whether that's, you know, going to, you know, last minute raise on terms that, you know, we, we don't we don't need to talk about the exact terms of what it was, but I'm no, sure they weren't very good. Situation, they weren't very good. Right. Um, asking your employees to take a cut. Right. Like these are th hard things for a founder. Did you think about giving up at all? Oh yeah, every day. Uh, it it got to the point where there, there were two like pretty bad things. I couldn't get to sleep at night, and I was on uh, a lot of melatonin, which is the easy thing. But then I had a psychologist psychiatrist writing me uh, different scripts for different stuff. Uh, like clonopin is like the easy one for, for panic attacks. And that thing helped to quell a lot of the craziness, but I would couple that with, uh, like some of the stronger over the counter sleeping pills. And, uh, I was diagnosed bipolar two in my early twenties. So I've been on Lamictal ever since. And my, my brain is extremely sensitive to any medication. So when I was on these things, I would wake up and feel horrible. Uh, I, I couldn't get out of bed, not because I was depressed, but because my mind, I just, I just couldn't do anything. Or I was in like extreme anger. I was like very, very, uh, on edge from everything. And I would wake up and our app would be down. The only app we have would be down. Like it wouldn't be working. And then, uh, someone would, you know, have, have some big like personal issue and they would have to step out. And then I would have to ask the team to take uh, voluntary pay cuts and I was in San Francisco at the time, and uh, my wife, now ex-wife at the time, uh, I was alone in this apartment and eventually got a roommate. And so I was waking up like very often more or less alone in this house with a business that was failing. I hadn't been able to sleep. I was on these drugs that were a complete mess. And then I had to go in and pitch a company that I didn't believe in. So mm -hmm. I was standing in front of these investors, and I was having these pretty consistent almost lucid dreams of how I was going to kill myself. So I was thinking like, okay, I don't want people to find the body. So I'm going to like tie weights to myself to get dragged down into the ocean. If I jumped off a building, that would be pretty terrible. And I, it never got to the point where I like went to do something, but it got pretty specific as to how I was going to kill myself. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know how to tell people to kind of not go through this because it's kind of, it's documented to the extent that people have shared this stuff as other founders. And not a, there's a lot of founder help support lines now that they have this. And uh, uh, I'm one of the admins in a 220 founder WhatsApp group in uh, Manhattan Founders now. And sometimes this thing kind of comes up, but I think most people keep it pretty private. And if you yeah. don't have money for the business to keep going, it's hard, but then you're constantly facing this money decreasing kind of thing. Now, there's this uh, Buddhist philosophy to not care about the outcome. And I've read it and it doesn't sink in. So it does nothing to me. Uh, I was meditating a lot and that did nothing. It helped to ease my mind a little bit, but it didn't help me get to sleep. It didn't help me stay asleep. It was like uh, terrific in, in thought and it just didn't, it didn't really work for me. Um, yeah. I brought my bicycle to San Francisco. I'm a big cyclist. I would do big rides, like four hour rides to try to make myself exhausted. And I, I like couldn't move by the time I got home and I still couldn't get to sleep. Like it, it was like, 
Wow. Really pretty bad. So I tried to shop our company. I went to uh, my old company and say, Hey, do you want to buy us? And like the whole dynamic was like, it, it didn't work. Like I really didn't want to want the, the, that uh, concept to, to, to function. I didn't really want the boss. Um, and then I went to two, I went to our, our, one of our partners I work with very closely who, now we work like very closely now together. I wanted to see if, uh, if they wanted to buy us, I went to our direct competitor and I was kind of like skirting the issue. I didn't want to say like, we're about to die. Do you want to buy us? Because then they could, you know, use that against us. But I said, Hey, do you know, you want to partner really close. We have a lot of stuff that you guys don't have. You know, I don't know how this would look, but do you want to do this? No one was biting. I, I couldn't really like, just, just nothing was working. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if we have like three, four, 500 K ARR and someone's saying, you know, I'll give you 2x ARR over a three-year payment plan. I'm like, this is a horrible deal. Like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather go yeah. out of business than have this. And there was a lot of, a lot of, um, I don't know what the word is. Like, I, I was fearing regret. I was, I had this, uh, they call it like, uh, you know, the, this FOMO that like I would, I would have another business that it wouldn't get to carry through. Like my last business, I sold the bulk of my shares for like 100k after working nonstop for like a year and a half. And I mean, really, really nonstop. It was like uh, 12 hours a day. And then it was, that, that's Monday to Friday. And then it was like another, I don't know, eight hours on Saturday and two to three hours on Sunday. And it, it, if you do that, like my eyes started twitching. It, it was, the whole thing was horrible. And then to only get out for 100K, well, you know, you could say 100K is a lot, but like I wasn't really getting paid that much the whole time I was doing it either. And all of my friends, uh, now, now granted, this is like a whole different scenario. It's not like I, I grew up in like a rural India and lived under a bridge. So I'm, I'm very like, um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is like was, was born into a lot of, um, benefits that a lot of people didn't have. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you stub your toe, like that hurts more than the biggest war that's going on at the time, right? There's this theory that like whatever's happening to you. So I didn't want this, this whole thing to fail. So for some reason, I just kept going. And I don't know if I, I just like I'm a masochist and like really want this constant pain. But uh, eventually things like panned out and we found a way through it. And um, my, my therapist, she kept saying to me, just wait and see, wait and see, wait and see, wait and see. Because we still hadn't actually gone out of business. We still hadn't actually missed a payroll. So, you know, we still weren't black and white dead. Uh, but in my mind, like it was... It was brutal. Yeah. And what, what dragged, what dragged you out of it? I mean, like, was there any one thing? Was it a confluence of factors? I mean, you mentioned being a masochist, but I think most founders are masochists because you kind of got to be a lunatic to start a company. You got to be a yeah. bit nuts. Yeah. Right. Um, but like what, like what was it that, that got you out of the rut? Uh, you know, it's something I still haven't been able to solve. If the company gets into some kind of cash crunch, I haven't been able to figure out the psychology through it yet. The only thing that got us out of it was figuring out how to get money into the business. We got some early sales and events. We had uh, one organization, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, IEB. They were a, a great partner to us. We constantly built out their event stack for... Uh, pretty big contracts that they were giving us. So our, our team of eight at the seven or eight at the time, we were working nearly full time just to like have them going, which was great because it fed our event stack. So that really helped a lot. We had another big customer that paid for half the year upfront as they were monthly, like all these little things added up, nothing really by itself worked. And eventually we were able to pay our own bills. And I think my comp at the time was like 50 K and every month it was like going, my savings were going down and down and down. I only had 30 K of savings and every month it went down like 2 K, 2 K, 3 K. I don't know, but eventually it, it met some equilibrium. Yeah. Well, it, and here you are now <laughs> on the other side of it, but still, you know, even being as large as you are with as much revenue and employees as you have, it's still, day-to-day psychology in, in some cases, right? Um, and yeah, I think a lot of founders go through that. It's still rough. I mean, we're at about 14 million now. This month, we have a lot in the pipeline. So we have a shot at being like 16 million by the end of the month. We'll see what happens. There's about 105 of us now and things have really changed with the company. Um, uh, in the About a year and a half ago, I had a, a bit over 50 
investors reach out that all wanted to cut us a check. They all wanted to do either minority or majority deals. But um, I, I ran a bank process with an investment banker a few years ago. I paid them 25K flat fee. They shopped us. And at the time, someone wanted to give us like, it would have ended up being like a guaranteed 4 million to me, something like this, which is like a life-changing amount of money. At the time I had yeah. under 100K of savings and to go from 100K to, I don't know, three, 4 million or something after taxes, like, that's like crazy. And I, I figured, you know, if someone's willing to do this now and the company's still working, I might as well keep going. So then we had all these investors reach out and they wanted to cut like pretty big checks, but my life was my, my life is already like what I want. I didn't really want any more. And I didn't want to have a boss and a board and all this stuff. So I got turned on to this like structured debt kind of thing. So we got this facility that was a 14 million facility that we grew to like 18 million. And it has some covenants in place. So like we need more revenue in order to unlock more of the the financing. Uh, but that's ended up working out pretty well because we were able to hire a lot ahead of revenue, still don't have a board, sort of had bosses because we had to stay in the covenant compliance and they have like some degree of controls, but it's a heck of a lot different than having VCs. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually know one founder who likes his board and I know hundreds of founders who don't like their board. Uh, so that, that's like something I've been sensitive to, to trying to not having to have because it's more important to just enjoy life than to not have that that boss and my coo says i'm unemployable uh like i every past job i had like it just didn't <laughs> quite work out with the boss yeah. um and for the most part every employee we've had that we've wanted to have stick around has stayed i think maybe over the course of the last seven and a half years maybe two or two maybe three people have left that we didn't want to stay but everyone else it was like kind of a parting way so i try to run the company the way i've kind of always wanted to run the company with this four-day work week and we give like one percent of revenue to strike climate we give 3k a month to to watsy.org and you know we're fully remote i don't like commuting to offices and everybody has a lot of um what's the word i forget what the word is but you can go out and do kind of whatever you want as long as you get your thing your job done I don't remember your original question was like, how did we get to this point? Maybe people liked the culture. They stayed. We did a lot of things that ended up working. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You, you, you mentioned that you, you give uh, employees a, a lot of an, a, autonomy and I know you Thank guys you. also work. leverage uh, a, uh, um, a four day work week. Uh, right. Like a lot of, a lot of things you give a lot of, you give a lot of revenue away. You, you, you give back like what, <clears throat> what, what led you to the point where you were able to start doing things like that? Or were, was it things like that that led you to the point where you are? Or how, how did those things connect for you? Um, it's kind of a weird concept to give money away before we even break even. But yeah. uh, we just did it anyway. We would have been, I, I bought two companies like a year and a half ago. If we didn't buy them and we didn't start doing a lot of hiring, we would have reached break even. So I just started to give some of the money away. I mean, 1% of revenue is not like a crazy thing. That's, that's not like it has a material impact on the company. Obviously it does something, but like, it's not like something crazy. And, um, I just think like corporations have like a social duty to do something. Like you don't have to maximize profits for the hell of it. Like once you reach some certain amount, it just becomes like greed and some like boasting thing. And obviously this is my own opinion, but, um, I think something in, some like a mashup big combination of these concepts people tend to gravitate towards. And the people that have worked here that have been at other companies, they say our culture is pretty different. Um, I've never really worked at a lot of other companies for a long time. I never really stayed anywhere more than like a year and a half and never really got to soak it up. But uh, I worked at like General Motors and Pier One, a lot of big organizations doing property management and other stuff. And um, I don't know, I, I think... I think people have come here because they, they like the challenge of the stuff we're building. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at what we're actually doing, we're making events and payments software for Salesforce. There's already other platform, there's already other competitors that do it outside of Salesforce. There's like 50 event software that exists, right? Like we're not doing any kind of earth shattering work in the world, but it's mentally challenging. Uh, it provides a lot of benefits to people. Like we've had some people on the team that have had one, two, three babies, while they've worked here, uh, they like they live their lives here. They have a lot of stock options. The exit, you know, if we do what we think we're going to do, it's pretty life changing for a lot of people, including a lot of people outside of the U.S. We pay them like four or five times what like the highest paid is in, in other groups because I, I, it's just like you know, pay pay people what they're worth, not necessarily the geography per se. 
uh, some cost of living factor in there. But um, I think these things all combine to people just wanting to stay. There's something about uh, staying at a job, not necessarily for the money. You know, if someone's offering you 20% more, does it really change your life? Well, you know, if you're living below the poverty line or some minimum threshold, then yeah. But once it gets past some certain point, then I, I think people leave jobs because of managers, not because of the company. And as long as we keep the culture where it is, I think that's what's kept people here. Yeah. Let, let's talk about some of those people. Because in in, uh, in one of the answers that you gave, you spoke about um, bringing on uh, a, a sales person to help sell your idea because that wasn't natural for you. And then bringing on a chief operating officer to help augment your kind of visionary brilliance. Like what, um, like what, what drove those, what drove those hires and how were those hires? Um, like how, how are those, how are the, the, was that talent constructed in your mind towards what you've built so far? I just want to further define visionary brilliance. Uh, I, I think, I think, uh, my superpower is killing ideas. So, so, uh, absolutely not, uh, visionary brilliance because almost everything we've done has not worked. Uh, but once we identify something's not working, we kill it. And that's, what's helped the company to be able to, uh, to, to go on. Uh, like I, we, we were building this billing app and I was working almost every weekend, uh, with, uh, one of our devs and another person, to build this this whole billing structure that for a number of reasons we ended up just killing. I just killed it like overnight. And we went on to the next thing. And I think a lot of people get hung up on trying to do things that just aren't working. And at some point you just had to like kill it. So I've I've been very wrong very, very many times. Um uh the brilliance uh, to kill is oftentimes outweighs the brilliance to create, by the way. It's yeah, it's yeah it's, it's a, that's, a, that's a piece of it. <laughs> it's a piece of it. Um I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn because I, I feel like I have a lot to say because our, our company tends to be a bit more open than others. So if we're doing well or not well with something and I share it, people like seeing the inner workings of a company because it's it's there's this newer concept of like building in public where still mostly not a lot of companies do it. And uh, Caesar Devoto at the time, he was at one of our competitors and he saw, and he said, Hey, you know, I want to come over and work for you. We eventually said, yeah, let's do it. So he came over and, and worked here, uh, about a year and a half. And that was great. And he brought over a whole bunch of people and those people he brought over are all still here. And then eventually Stuart saw all this stuff on LinkedIn that I was posting. And he said, I think I can help you with your sales process. And I said, good, our sales process, like we need help. And he said, uh, give me a day contract, pay me 800 bucks a day. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then uh, just let me go. And I'm like, well, what are your deliverables? He's like, well, just fire me the next day if you don't like it. I'm like, well, 800 bucks a day is a lot of money. He's like, yeah, we'll fire me the next day if you don't like it. I'm like, okay, fine. So he was there for two weeks. And then I said, can you just come over and run uh, sales? And he said, okay, great. Yeah, so he just, I, I got sort of lucky, I would say, that that Caesar and, and Stuart both reached out, but... I guess if I wasn't posting on LinkedIn, then it wouldn't have existed that we would have spread kind of this, this like culture. And once he came over, I saw he was really good at finance. Uh, so he took over finance and we shared the same thoughts on culture. So then he took over HR and then allowed me to focus on the stuff that I really like, which is the product and engineering side, because I frankly don't like all the rest of it. And I'm also not that good at it. There's this concept that like whatever you're the most patient at tends to be what you're the best at. And I just really am not that patient at like, I want the customer experience to be good. I don't really want to work with the customers. Uh, so I, I want them to like enjoy the app, but I don't, you know, I don't want to like talk to them all day. Uh, and it's not Different because of our, our customer base. We actually have a lot of very, very nice people that are customers. I just, I just, you know, I, I like working from home from my computer and just, you know, kind of leave me alone. Um, yeah. but, but those, those things have allowed me to, to keep going and re, re, retain interest there. There's, um, there's an investment banker that I've become pretty good friends with. And a lot of the deals they do are with founders that hit 5 million ARR and they go to sell. They say, I'm done. 
I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm bored. I want to do something else. And that's happened to me a few times until I've now re-injected myself into the business with like certain things I really, really like. Like I have my own little R&D team where we're making like a few forward-looking apps. I inject myself into deals that have like really complex scenarios. I just find that intellectually uh, very interesting. Yeah. And um, was it was it the first person that you brought on as a salesperson that was able to drive like was Caesar first and 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 it was just a, a success or did you have to go through a few beforehand? Caesar was the first one that came on that had experience. Uh, I I had this idea in my head that I could bring someone on that had no experience just to show them how to demo the app and show it to people and that would work and that doesn't work. Because there's this, these concepts of creating timelines. Otherwise, like why would someone buy unless they had some like immediate reasons? Mm -hmm. There's uh, trying to find the benefits of their pain points to flip that around for them and to highlight them in the app to find out why they're actually trying to make a purchase. These things don't just like intuitively get created. There's ways to get creative with deals. So you could say like, hey, I'll give you the first month for free while you're onboarding. Or I can do a three-year deal at this discount instead of a one or two-year deal. Like things that are obvious if you've been doing sales for a while. But if you haven't, there are things that I would have to train people on while I was doing support and product and engineering and doing marketing. Yeah. And you just don't have time to do the training. So there were a lot of mistakes I made with hiring early on because it was while it was a lot cheaper to get the people uh, with cost that hadn't had the experience, it was a lot more expensive with time to do it. So Caesar was the first person that came on that had uh, a lot of experience in doing these like mid-sized deals, these like 10, 20, 30, 40K deals. And then Stuart was the first person that came on that had a lot of experience doing much bigger deals. Like 100K was like on the lower end. And he came on doing much bigger experience with like four, 400K, million dollar, two, three, four, like much bigger things. So it's helped us a lot more to go up market to be able to, to sell into these bigger organizations. Because now you have to sell not just to like the four people that are on the call. You have to go through an RFP that then goes through a security review. You had to go through legal. That's not just like, here's some red lines on your MSA. It's like really, really a lot of stuff that they're scrutinizing. And you, you end up working through five different departments, five different leaders of each one. And it just, it takes a while. And it's like, you need a different like uh, mentality. I would just get on the phone with people and say, hey, we fixed your problem. Can I send you the order? Can we just do this? And that's just not how these big deals work. They're just like, I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm hopping off the phone. So, so he brings on like a kind of a different thing. Um, it, it's My mentality is good for uh, early companies. If there's a fire, I'll hop on it. I'll put it out. And that's the stuff that I like. Uh, but as a bigger company, the employees go crazy with that. There's a different person that joins a 100-person company than joins a 10-person company. The 10-person company, they like the insanity. A 100-person company, you give them insanity, they're going to quit. You don't right. give them processes, they're going to quit. Like They can't just come into some unprocessed nonsense. So that's been a big change with our sales and marketing team too. The early salespeople like coming in with Caesar, there was no process. And he started to like put in some process. And then Stuart came in and he had a playbook of like some bigger process. But like Stuart wouldn't be the person that we would bring on if we had 500K ARR. Like he's not right. the person that's in the weeds doing the demos and like, that's just not where he, he shines. There's like a different person for the different stages. So that, you know, we've been lucky there and I didn't understand this early on. Well, it sounds like some of that involves a lot of pricing changes and a lot of, you know, value-based pricing alongside of that versus traditional, let's get the transaction done, right? Which I think a lot of founders have a hard time because they want the win versus getting the value. Um, Big time. Right. And uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of that evolution of your pricing and packaging? Yeah. Uh, I just gave a presentation on this at Nathan Locke's uh, SaaS Open recently where uh, founders undervalue their their pricing. Uh, the the founders of Segment hired this guy. Um, I always forget his first name, but his last name is Ramanujan. And he was a pricing consultant. He said, keep doubling your price until people think you're crazy and then double it again until they say you're absolutely insane. We're not going to buy it again. So Segment actually doubled their price like three, four, five times until they got to the price that they wanted. And even though I listened to his talk and I knew about the story, I still didn't do it because I was still too scared. So if I had like a 25K ARR deal on the line, like that was huge. We're just going to do it. And what I later found out was, you know, sometimes people would slip up in their words and we would get like a 60K deal and they'd be like, oh, this is so easy. This is so small. We're just going to like fly through procurement. I'm like, oh my God, like I could have charged these people 600K for the same thing yeah. because 
if if you look at all the costs that actually go into it, like you have to cover salaries, obviously, but at some point you actually have to generate a profit. And unless you're generating a profit early on, you can't hire more people to support the apps. And that's what I just didn't see. So in order to, to do these pricings, I, I look back at our Stripe pricing and over the course of like a three-year period, I had something crazy, like 930 prices for our payments app that I was trying wow. different stuff with people. And that's like, that's just nuts. So I, I I didn't take a more strategic approach to going about it. I would just change our pricing on the app exchange. And then some person say, hey, I saw a lower or higher price yesterday. Like what happened? I'm like, ah, this is a new price. Uh, so it's it just doesn't work like that, like that. So we had to 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 figure out pricing that that worked based upon how people were using the app. So with our events app, for example, some people really like per user, some people like per registration. And it depends upon the dynamics of the company, depends upon how they want to do their security. And then we ended up having full users and light users for the app to try to align the value of how they were using it with like, you know, what it is that we were charging. So figuring out that packaging was really hard. And a lot of founders, like uh, I'm a very big culprit of this, they would say, you know, I built this thing in two months with a developer and the thing works. How could I charge more than 15K for this? Well, there's a lot of ongoing costs. So you have to maintain the API. You have to support this thing. Being on Salesforce, people have unlimited use cases. It's not like we own the platform. So someone th- throws in a flow with these tra- chained automations and they'll hook in like a MuleSoft integration and it's doing these callouts that happen after your whole process runs. Like you, you can't foresee these things. All of a sudden, this 15K deal is sucking all the time that you possibly have. So even though we could build this thing kind of quickly, like I, I couldn't see it. So now we all end up having all these low priced customers that are, have these crazy requirements. So I, it's, it's like, um, you know, we're facing a, a payroll that could bounce. And so I don't want to lose the deal by just letting it sit for four days, which is what you, you need on these bigger deals. You need to let it marinate. They have these talks. You know, Two people have full slates on Thursday and Friday, and they can't meet until Monday. And to me, that's like, oh my God, can't you just get on the phone and make a decision? For, like, I just, I just didn't have the, the personality to do it. So, so getting people in that I could actually say like, just do this thing and say, okay, trust me and do it. And like that, like, thank God I <laughs> relinquished that, that ownership that those things really helped. Well, and, and, and then you got to deal with procurement <laughs> even after all that's complete, right? Yeah. They, they just, procurement's job is to try to get the pricing down more or less. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me to negotiate on those things. I'm, I'm not the best negotiator. So it's, it's, <laughs> that's just hard too. Yeah. So, so you brought in, brought in somebody, uh, Caesar early on to help get the company moving and get some process in place, um, brought in your COO to then, uh, really establish more process once the team got bigger and, and, um, you know, what's the next, what's the next big hire that you guys have on the roadmap? You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at, bigger organizations, there's a few key roles we're missing. We don't have a, a CMO, but like, I don't know what a CMO would necessarily do today that our marketing team isn't doing uh, that, you know, uh, has that title per se. There's a, a CTO, which we don't currently have. But if you look at like what they're responsible for versus how we're currently doing things today, it's more around operational efficiency. So with our engineering team, we've been meeting with a lot of engineering leaders and other founders to try to learn all the metrics that they're using. And, and uh, we've put a lot of those into place and that's really making some improvements. Then there's like a chief technical architect and architect, architecture has never really been our, our problem. Like we're pretty good at architecture. Uh, so I don't know, know if we necessarily need that. Uh, our heads of finance are doing pretty well there. So, you know, it's I don't know what things look like at 50 million ARR. Like, I'm not sure if everyone we have that's leading departments today would really scale then because it, it becomes a different animal again. You know, if the number of customers, we have four X's, five X's, it's just, it's totally different. There, I forget who it was, like maybe it was Ben Horowitz or, or, um, or Andreessen. They, they said like when a company, uh, I don't even know if it was them that said this, but when, when something in the company triples, everything breaks. If it's headcount or if it's revenue, all the processes break. And this happened big time when we went from 10 to 30 people, everything broke. And then we went from 30 to hundred people, everything broke. We needed new marketing systems, new sales systems. We needed new processes. I hate the word process. It's like, I, I can't, there's a lot of bad words I can think of and processes in that bucket. And that's why I like having my R and D team. There's like two or three people. And we just like, 
you know, my, my JIRA ticket will have a description and or it'll have like a title, no description. And they'll just like make it and do a commit. And that's not how the end, rest of the engineering team works. And I just can't stand it. So I, I, I try to hire people that have a lot of process and uh, I don't really know exactly what the next hire would look like. I just know that our current team is functioning pretty well. Um, uh, Stuart and I also know that we're not the people to run the company if we get like well beyond 50 million ARR. I think we have some concepts of like wanting to then either you know do a majority sale and slot in a CEO to keep things going that you know, like has been and done there done that thing before because I'm not a process guru it's just not what you know excites me and, and scaling that yeah. I don't have this like concept where I have to have legacy I have to have this ego behind it I just like the the, the engineering challenge behind it and um, you know it's it's been fun there so once we've reached some kind of scale we'll eventually do a majority sale they'll slot in some people that will run this thing they'll keep the whole thing going and uh, I have a feeling that's what it will end up looking like. Awesome. Well, before we uh, before we hop into our our founder five and close this off, uh, I want to touch on one more big topic that you mentioned. So you mentioned um, killing products, right? Um, <laughs> do you have any particular uh, approach um, or? Uh, process, even though you hate that word, for building and then killing products at Blackthorn. Like, how do how do you make the tough decisions to let go of of certain products? Would be a better way to ask that, I suppose. Yeah, in the Salesforce ecosystem, we had a lot of App Exchange listings, and we just looked to see which ones got the most leads, and then we looked to see is there a grouping within the leads that could form a go to market. Now, go-to-market is a concept I thought was just like a BS marketing concept that never really made any sense. But then I started to learn like, oh, it actually takes a long time to make a deck and to do all these different things. Like you have to steer the team down one path. So we saw this grouping of higher ed and nonprofit that aligned with our with a particular stack we had around events. And within payments, we found a few different thesis that worked there. Now we had this um, this other web contextual based invoicing thing that got a few people reaching out, but they wanted so many features that had nothing to do with what it did. Same thing happened with this billing app. So we knew that like it was too broad there to create a, a, a finite thesis. And then we had this donations app. That thing had so much interest. No one wanted to pay more than 3K a year and it needed massive handholding because it was on Salesforce. Um, there's other apps that that do donations really well, like DonorBox, but they're inside of a, a specific uh, locked UI that people can't do like silly things with. So their app scales really well because it doesn't have these, these crazy configurations. So it was either based upon lack of revenue growth with enough margin that we killed it. Or the the amount of leads coming in couldn't couldn't define this thesis. So there's there's these platforms. If you're not on on Salesforce, called the like ClickFunnels, you can create like a hundred landing pages, spin them all up, and then you can put uh, a series of of Google ads behind them to drive traffic uh, towards them to see if you can get some grouping as to either messaging for a single app that works, or you can put out a whole bunch of different types of messaging. So a lot of people build infrastructure that you could go after certain verticals for, and you have ideas as to which vertical it would be, but you really don't know. So if you, you can throw up a lot of different ways that you can market the app, see what comes in, have a lot of customer conversations and try to find a path. Like that's been a way that I've heard other people can replicate this app exchange listing concept. And this listing concept was in 2015, 2016. It's a lot harder to, to replicate that thing now. The app exchange now has something crazy, like four or 5,000 apps. It didn't have that before. So if you wanted to do this now, you could do it off Salesforce and do that at SEO kind of approach. Um, we, we had a lot of success working with system integrators. On Salesforce, if you buy it, you usually work with an SI partner to implement it. So we wanted to uh, work with the SIs to see what needs they had to implement our apps. So that helped a lot to get that feedback. We also then took our target verticals and did a survey of four or five different additional theses we had. And we found out one of them was to do text messages. So I bought a SMS app called Texty. Uh, Clint was the founder over there, made a great app. That thing's been very successful for us. Another one was to build uh, the ability to store, to, to sell continuing and executive education. So we have a storefront app, which is going to be launching next month. The thing's done internally. We're now just like tying off some loose ends. They wanted this thing. Then we're, there were three or four other ones that had great competition out there already. And it would have like shifted the whole company to do it. So you know, there wasn't really one 
good answer, but they kind of all aggregated to find some way that works better. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, sounds like a few answers. Feasibility is something. I mean, obviously, thinking about the connection to value and customer, and and ultimately, um, you know, the value to you guys as well from a revenue and growth perspective. Yeah, you have to actually make money to run a business. That's been a new concept for me. Weird. Yeah, it's kind of nuts, right? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> All right, last last follow on. I lied about last question. So, um, <laughs> last follow on to that though is when you were thinking about buying these couple of businesses um, or building, right, um, or mm-hmm. doing some other partnership strategy or whatever it was to solve the problem. Was it always a go buy a business or was it do we build, buy, or partner? Um, question like how and and if so, how how did you solve for it being an you know ultimately a buy decision? Yeah, I, I approach things from a tech rather than a revenue perspective. A lot of companies buy companies for the revenue. I wanted something that could uh, align with our stack immediately. So being on Salesforce helped, uh, but it's not always the answer because you can still have different object structures and have redundancies and things that don't make sense. So uh, this one founder made this app, PCI-Fi, to do scanning for credit cards within your org. So if you want to be PCI compliant, you have to both like tokenize correctly and you have to make sure you're not storing cards in your environment. And ours didn't do the latter. He had this tech that did that. He was a one-person developer company and the revenue was low enough that we could make a deal. He didn't want to stay on the company. I said, great, we don't want you anyway. And uh, his name is Matt Parker. We've we've remained friends and uh, that ended up working pretty well. And then with SMS, uh, we knew that there was a way that we could send text messages. It's a pretty lightweight uh, amount of work to build uh, in relation to other things. Like if you buy, build a subscription management app like Zora, that's a crazy amount of work. So doing something like SMS comparatively, that was something that we could buy. And so I I, um, I come from like the, the architecture background. So I installed a bunch of the apps that were on the app exchange. I knew generally some of the customer base sizes. So I, I played with three of them that I thought could be a fit. And then I reached out to the founders, had chats with those, and then ended up working out uh, with Clint. There were a few others that I thought maybe we would want to build. And I knew our current stack where doing a storefront was very aligned with our event stack. You need to have a list of products like a store. You need to have a a product detail, which is sort of like an event. And you need to have a checkout. And we have a lot of the underpinnings of checkout. So I thought, okay, we could accelerate this thing and get going. The other things didn't really align. So I approached each one with a, a tech perspective. The The SMS one, that ended up being a bit bigger. They had around... It's hard to give the ARR number because there was a lot of usage-based billing that was like chunky at times. So it was somewhere around where around like 550K is what they were pacing for full year. So I asked them what multiple you want to do. They said uh, 6X. I'm like, okay, that's fair. So it ended up being like a lump sum payment. And then the rest of the payments were over uh, two years uh, quarterly. And they were like an increasing amount of money to let us scale revenue to be able to pay that off. And I funded the down payment uh, with debt, which was through CapChase. That ended up working out um, pretty well. So we didn't have to come up with the money ourselves in order to do it. The rest of it, we paid off with uh, cash flow. So there was a mixture of like, does the tech work? Does the revenue uh, make sense? And can we actually pay for it? So that was like the combination if we wanted to actually build versus buy it. Yeah, no, it makes makes perfect sense. All right. Now, uh the uh, founder five. <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna roll through a few questions here. The goal is to work through them rather quickly and and get your take on them. Okay, so the first one is uh, number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. It's 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 not exactly a KPI, but it's mostly just don't run out of cash. Uh, in the concept of, of building products, it takes time to make a really mature product that people want to buy on a big scale. You just need to buy time. So as long as you can be buying enough time in order to get there, it's mostly just making sure we still have runway. Love it. All right. Top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Hire for what you suck at. And generally what you hate and what you suck at are the same thing. So for me, it was doing these big deals. Love it. All right. Favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow? I've read a lot of business books and I can't say I really enjoyed any of them. So the thing I think that has really, like I've read really, really a lot of them. And I think the thing that helped me 
probably the most was, was, uh, probably hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. It was the first book I've read that I really, really just enjoyed. So I read only sci-fi books now. I don't read any business books. And it's been a way to allow me to kind of disconnect and get better sleep at night, which allows me to think clearer. So it's not a business book, but I read now what I enjoy. Interesting. All right. Piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. A lot of founders ask me for advice and generally speaking, no one listens to advice ever. Uh, maybe it just gives them ideas. Uh, but, but the thing I've learned from like almost dying it is this is not exactly counter, but it's, uh, if you keep going, it's the only chance the business has at succeeding. It doesn't mean it's going to work, but it means it has the best chance because, um, if you, if you, if you're done with a business, you can just uh, get up and leave. You know, it's it's annoying to unwind contracts and deal with uh, liability and whatnot. But if you're done, you just you send an email to everyone. I'm done. I'm winding this down. That's it. You could do that in five minutes. The same thing with a relationship. If it's not working, you can get up and go. Like, but it's the hard thing is actually staying in it and making it work. So the, the best chance it has is just to to not give up. It's good. Uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography when you've accomplished all you set out to do? Uh, maybe we all die, make it worth it. I, mm. I, I tell that to our team that, um, it, you know, we're all going to die one day, uh, to try to find things that you enjoy doing, which is why we do this four day work week thing, because, you know, we're not going to be the fastest moving company. We're not going to do something that's like first principles doing some crazy thing where you actually need to put in a crazy amount of time in order to accelerate something going really fast. Uh, but I personally love cycling and walking through the woods and I, I just never found enough time to really do it on just weekends. And when we were first starting, there's no way we could have done this. Like, uh, money was tight. We had to keep going. Um, but, but what I found is that if there's a way to actually find time to do more of the things that provide fulfillment, uh, that that's been something that's been very rewarding. Terrific. This is, uh, this has been great. So you've given a ton to our listeners today, time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those <laughs> listening help you out? Uh, well, from what I found, usually the listeners of tech podcasts are not usually our buyers, but if you do know someone that uses Salesforce that doesn't like their payments and events, and maybe like 0.1% of you actually know someone in this realm, uh, then, you know, send them over to Blackthorn. It's blackthorn.io, by the way. I reached out to the dot-com people and they haven't responded. So uh, I think it's three people. We would buy the domain, but for now it's blackthorn.io. Yeah, it's good. Uh, uh, and how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, just email me. It's chris at blackthorn.io. You can get me that way. Uh, if you do send me something on LinkedIn, say like why you're sending me something. I get a huge amount of people every day that just lob over things. And if I accept everyone, they all send me a message. And I, almost every single time I'm trying to sell something. So you just email me. It's chris at blackthorn.io. It's usually just Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Chris Federspiel, Blackthorn, blackthorn.io. You can find out more about their awesome suite of products by visiting their website. Reach out to Chris. And uh, thank you for joining us on The Dirt. Thanks, Chris. Cool. Thanks, Jim. It's been great. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt. <laughs>